0: first post-COVID podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you but seem it, nervous.
0: It's been a terrible time since we've done this last.
1: It's been an interesting period of time, but here we are.
0: All right. To switch it up, what was your favorite moment from uh, the pandemic?
1: Trying to find toilet paper at Costco. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible, but I have a bidet, so, mm. you know, I only went through one toilet paper toilet paper roll this year?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My favorite uh, pandemic moment was also related to toilet paper (laughs) and it's when I had to go get a new inhaler from Kaiser Permanente, like the pharmacy. And I had been scouring grocery stores for weeks. And so I broke into the toilet paper dispenser in the Kaiser public restroom and stole a roll of toilet paper <laughs> out of it. Because <laughs> there was nowhere to get it. Like I had been looking around for literal weeks and I was on like my last couple of sheets and I was like, this is it. Like I'm hacking a public bathroom toilet paper dispenser.
1: Yeah, they didn't need it, I'm sure.
0: No, and I feel like all that they have done to me, I deserved
1: it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> intros <laughs> all right
0: <laughs> circling back um, super stoked for this episode I feel like I have been wanting to have this person on since we started this podcast and the the stars have not lined up but today we have rock climber flower tattoo haver world-changing Tanner Sislaw joining us live in the flesh with his partner Izzy.
2: Who's super stoked? <laughs> <laughs> super stoked. Yeah, it's yeah, it's good to be here. We also I've, uh, heard you guys talk a little bit about the podcast, but um, yeah, I'm just excited to contribute.
0: Yeah, I think this is also going to be our first episode that's not fueled by uh, eight-year barmates
1: <laughs> or tequila, <laughs> or tequila
0: <laughs> and cheese.
1: <laughs> Only Thai food this time around.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, diving in, Tanner. You want to give us a small synopsis of how you ended up in PB recording a podcast today.
2: <laughs> small <laughs> synopsis. Okay. Um, so I guess maybe the easiest thing to do is to just start from the beginning, just when I first met you, um, which gosh was almost three years ago now. Maybe I feel like it was more, it feels like more. A lot has happened since <laughs> then. Um, I think it but was, yeah,
3: it was like three years ago. Yeah, I guess it was probably our second year in Santa Cruz.
2: Yeah. So we, yeah, Izzy and I first met in Santa Cruz. So we went to UC Santa Cruz. That's where we met in our first year. And I, I guess we'll eventually talk about the, the accident, how I kind of found climbing, but was really getting into climbing. And Jill, uh, was working with Paradox and doing a climbing clinic. And, uh, yeah, that's how we kind of first met Mm -hmm. and then ended up coming back down towards Southern California for a break. And then we met up in LA a second time. And I think that second time was the first time i had ever climbed without my back brace. Mm-hmm. And that was brutal. You were wearing
0: a back brace when we first met. Yeah. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Interesting.
2: I remember it was at cliffs of id in yes. LA Yep. and the whole paradox crew was super psyched to see me climb. Cause I'm sure you just like made it sound like I was just this like absolutely <laughs> Raging, just climber (laughs) who just like was a total, I don't know, badass, but it it felt like the expectations were a little bit too high. And I was just kind of nervous. I was like, oh man, this will be the first time I climbed without my brace. Like, Mm -hmm. and then it literally felt like my back was going to snap in half. It was really brutal. There was just a lot of tension in places that I hadn't felt in a long time. And it just felt like my spine is decompressing while I'm also trying to like keep a cool head. And trying to enjoy climbing and it, maybe it wasn't the most enjoyable session, but it was, it was nice <laughs> to see everyone. And, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the first time we met and then yeah. fast forward a little bit and we both end up in San Diego and, um, start climbing with the, the adaptive team and yeah, that's now we're that's, here. Now we're here.
0: <laughs> I remember the one thing about the first time we met cause I was with two of my bosses, Yeah, like my actual boss's bosses. And it was one of like the first ever, programs i've done outside masonry and for people who don't know tanner personally you are very even keel and just like namaste calm most of the time and i remember you were like complaining that your shoulder hurt and you were just kind of like not super stoked outwardly and i was like man this guy hates rock climbing he's never going to come back like i've ruined climbing for him Um, and that was like the one thing i laughed i was like man that guy tanner like really didn't have a good time
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it was, it was good. Um, I do remember, yeah, that definitely wasn't the best physical experience, but yeah, good emotional and spiritual yeah. experience. Yeah, it was good.
0: How far out was that from your accident? It was like recent, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, gosh, it's it's honestly a little hard sort of rehashing everything. It feels like everything has sort of been compressed down to this little space in the back of my head where it takes a minute to kind of um expand it out again. So I want to say... Because I started climbing probably three and a half months, four months, maybe after my accident, and Jesus. then I was in that back that back brace for a good two months. So let's call it six months post injury. Jesus, yeah, that's crazy. I'm just also just me- remembering now that first session in LA was the first time I had ever climbed with a slacked rope. Mm-hmm. And it felt so astronomically difficult. It was, yeah, that was a big day.
3: They had you on like a really, really tight rope for
2: for a long, long time. time, and having that kind of, yeah, that well, because you were still pull. in your
3: back brace.
2: Yeah, yeah, feeling yeah. really, really strong, and being like, yeah, I can power through a route, and then being able to not even <laughs> do maybe like three, four sequential moves was pretty rude, rude awakening. It was um pretty brutal. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a big day.
3: I mean, they were stoked to just see you on the wall.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what matters.
1: Yeah. Was well, climbing like it, was it something that interests you at all prior to your accident or? So that is the crazy thing. And I, I'm sure we'll touch on this, but
2: sort of the way that I found climbing, uh, it, so just to be blunt, like, no, I didn't really, I wasn't exposed at all to climbing, like didn't really know much at all. I, I'd heard of Alex Honnold and, uh, <laughs> that's about it. That's about it. Um, <laughs> And um, Well, you grew up as an ocean boy. I I did grow up as an ocean boy. I grew up as a soccer player, a multi-sport athlete, and was super into just athletics as a whole and movement in every way, shape, and form, Uh, but for whatever reason, had never really learned much about rock climbing, which is really ironic because I spent a lot of my childhood in Yosemite um, with my grandparents (laughs) and my mom who managed and... Owned like rental properties up there in Yosemite West, which is like 25 minutes outside the Valley, yeah. which is all the more the all the, the climbers live. <clears throat> so that was weird. Um, but yeah, even with being in that space and being so close to the action, I never really knew much about it. Yeah.
0: So going back to when you were first getting started climbing, <clears throat> what was it like mentally for you to transition from wearing your brace and climbing with your brace to,
2: taking it off it was uh not only was it physically painful but it was definitely a mental barrier just having that sort of support um and taking that support off was it was quite the transition um I just remember it being not only being like you know it was very a a love-hate relationship with this back brace because it was keeping me keeping everything in line keeping everything together but it was also just really uncomfortable and really frustrating was it
0: like hip bones to Um, armpits kind of, I don't remember it from when you first came.
2: Yeah. I, I think I remember it being, yeah, pretty close to pretty much lower abdomen up to up through my chest. And then that kind of extension piece kind of landed on my upper chest and it was probably just below my neck. So it was pretty much entire torso was supported by this back brace. Mm -hmm. It was pretty restricting. Um, so in a way, like being able to, relinquish that, that brace was pretty liberating. Um, just being able to have that other movement, but it was, it was scary to have that movement because it it didn't seem, uh, natural. It didn't seem like my body had, had time to figure itself out before making that jump. Um,
3: you also just had Hardware in your Oh yeah, that back. too. Yeah. yeah. It's like not
2: that. like I had four rods and sixteen <laughs> bolts from T eight to T twelve. Oh. Yeah, there's also that too. And feeling that metal in the in my back move as I was shifting through moves on the wall was also pretty extreme. So yeah. There's a yeah, a lot happening.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a big well, first of all, it's a fast transition yeah. to like
2: everything was very fast. Yeah.
0: Cause what was your official
2: injury list? So in terms of what I suffered on the the day of the accident. Yeah. So day of, and it, you know, it could have been more. Um, I mean, obviously the, the impact the the major part of the impact was my back. So had a, came out of it with a T10, T11 spinal cord injury, mm-hmm. technically incomplete. So we ended up actually having a little bit of confusion about this because at first the doctor or the neurosurgeon said that uh it was a complete sever well okay so maybe i'm mixing up my words he said it was the spinal cord had been severed but our kind of layman understanding of the word severed meant well at least we thought was a complete kind of cut through Mm -hmm. but sever in their mind was just a partial cut so technically i'm incomplete in the sense that there's was a little bit of residual spinal cord still attached um so it yeah it's it's very very small but um Yeah, so a T10, T11, paraplegic, and uh, outside of that we had my entire face just got blown up Um, and my entire right side of the face just got scraped up really bad and my entire forehead, nose broken, jaw broken. Um, Yeah, and then have some scar tissue on my shoulder. Mm
0: -hmm. Did you get a brain injury during that as well? No,
2: (laughs) Um, so that was a big concern just talking with the Sykes and just mm-hmm. all those folks, like they were kind of anticipating something happening down the road. Cause generally with those sorts of things, sometimes people go a few months and then the issues start kind of piling in or, you know, a little, of, um, little, little things just start kind of popping up. Um, but I never had that. Fortunately, I was very, very fortunate that mm-hmm. I didn't have a brain injury because to the best of my knowledge, it was primarily the back and then just my face that took the impact. Mm-hmm. No, no neck stuff. Um, yeah, nothing outside of that. So, Crazy.
0: and you know, this so. happened in San Diego and then you went yeah. to Craig hospital.
2: So I went or to, so this happened in Mount Woodson, right? Potato chip rock. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I went to Palomar Descondido. Okay. and then got transferred to, um, Casa Colina. Colina. Yeah. Casa Colina in Pomona.
0: Oh, so you were in a Craig hospital
2: one. Is that, I, I don't know. That's
0: like a, it's a hospital. Most of the people I've met who have had spinal cord injuries end up at uh, Craig Hospital out in Denver. It's like mm. a huge spinal cord. Mm. But I forgot. Yeah, you went up north, right? Yeah, so That's-
2: Pomona is just like kind of inland LA okay. area. Nice. That's kind yeah. of
1: surprising to me that you that you get transferred that far away from San Diego.
0: Yeah, I mean people come. Not have
1: like a a large healthcare system for those kind of injuries or I
0: don't really know how it works out, but I know people who have been injured, <clears throat> excuse me, skiing in Canada that have been, life flighted down to Craig hospital. Oh, yeah. I
3: mean, Denver just has like a big metropolis of yeah. healthcare yeah. specialty healthcare mm-hmm. stuff. But I know that they definitely have stuff. I mean, Costa Colina was great. Yeah, they didn't. They, they, were, they were fantastic. They were fantastic. Yeah.
0: I think it just worked out. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it saved you a lot in the life flight cost.
2: Yeah, <laughs> if nothing <I> mean, else. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, the the transition time in terms of being able to get through the physical rehab and the PT and stuff. Um, yeah, was pretty outrageous in terms of timeline. Like I was in and out. So I basically was admitted into the hospital. So the the injury happened March 28th of 2018, mm-hmm. and I think I was back home within, I wanna say three months, four months. That is I
3: wild. You, I think you came home in end of June or early
0: July.
2: I think so. You would have a better recollection of that. Yeah, because I, mean,
3: I, I have pictures with
2: timestamps I could look at. You guys started yeah.
0: dating like pretty soon before this all went down, right? Yeah. Four weeks.
2: Well, yeah. Well, we had known each other for about five months before that. Yeah. So we got really close. We got to be besties really early on. Um, <laughs> we were pretty much inseparable. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, Izzy had a boyfriend at the time. And Ooh. so that made things really <laughs> complicated. This might
0: be a different, a different kind yeah. of podcast. No, we, we, we,
2: we could dive, but you know, that just the surface level, um, recap of that is yeah, just being really close, really into each other for about five months, not crossing any boundaries and it got to the point where, uh, yeah, it just got to be a little bit too much and had mm-hmm. a heart to heart and, um, yeah, we took it slow and made the transition in the kind of, not the easiest way, but the most appropriate way. Yeah.
3: The we're, most we're respectful no one, way. Spe-
2: yeah, yeah. There you go. My
0: life sped up real fast.
2: My <laughs> life sped up <laughs> really fast. Yeah.
0: So Izzy, how did you get the news that this has happened? I,
3: I had been on the phone with Tanner, um, that morning they were actually supposed to him and his friends, it was spring break. So they were supposed to go to San Francisco for the week. Um, and something fell through and they decided to just go on a hike up to potato chip rock. And I was like, Tanner was making some joke on the phone. Um, and something like in some, something in me was just like, you know what? Like you only live life once, like go do whatever crazy thing you're going to do. And Fast forward, I'm in the car with my mom on the way back from shopping, and uh, I get a call from his sister, and I had never even talked to his sister before, really, like maybe on Facetime or something. And she's like, she's like, call me back, like right now. And so that's kind of how I got the news. I was at, I was with my family. We had, I had dropped Tanner off at the airport for spring break, driven back down, and, um, yeah, and then. But a day later, I drove down to San Diego from my family's house, saw you in the hospital. How
1: far you was
2: the You hadn't that
3: even um, been in surgery yet. You were still being stabilized.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you 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 live in Lompoc or you're, you grew up in Lompoc. Lompoc so yeah. You were, so I drove
3: down like
0: four and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Those moments are so profound because I feel like time just doesn't even go slow. It just like stops. Like I remember getting the call that my mom was having a heart attack and it's like the entire world just stops. Like you think about nothing else and especially having to, to drive four and a half hours and not knowing what's going on. Like that's a crazy experience. Yeah,
3: it was, I mean, I I feel like I have very clear like memories of like moments of like those hours before. And a lot of it was like talking to your dad, talking to your mom talking to everyone in your family that I hadn't met before. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You got thrown into the deep end.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, my my parents somehow trusted me enough to (laughs) not drive off the road (laughs) while I was crying on the way there. But, um, yeah, got there and then, um, you kicked out your, your dad from the (laughs) emergency room.
2: which I don't remember
3: because <laughs> you kept saying my name and so I got to go be with you before surgery, but hmm.
0: did you know the full extent or I guess how long did it take to find out like the full extent of what had happened?
2: So um, I guess we can, we can rewind a little bit just in terms of sequence of events of what happened, Okay, um, which I think will be important for context. So I ended up falling off of potato chip rock um, was traversing out to the cliff ledge and then my feet cut and lost my grip and then fell about 20 feet onto the rock slab. That's underneath the, the ledge. And that at that point of losing my grip, I completely blacked out. Like I, I don't even remember falling where it lights lights just completely went out. Don't even remember falling and don't remember anything for four days. Um, the first, kind of conscious memory, the first sort of um kind of view back into like relatively normal life was four days later when the they were pulling the ventilator out of my throat. Oh, and so what a terrible it was, event to wake It was up to. brutal. Yeah. <laughs> um just feeling like I was suffocating. And then they were I kinda came to and was in and out for a while and uh yeah and then they kinda told me the whole thing. And I just remember being like Well, the first thing that went through my head, I was like, well, why am I here? Like, what's going on? And then they were like, oh, you broke your back. And then I realized that I couldn't move my legs. And I think my emotions sort of surrounding the whole ordeal is sort of a testament to how I kind of just approach life in general, because I wasn't panicked the first, like the first sort of emotion wasn't panic, where I feel like generally most people who go through traumatic injuries and you know, it's not exactly my place to speak on behalf of them, but generally you're like, Oh my God, what's going on? I can't move my legs. I'm freaking out. My first thought was how do I get out of here?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, how, how can I do what's in my best interest to be able to move past this? And, uh, yeah, so that was kind of a quick jump through, but basically yeah, um, ended up staying in intensive care for, one and a half, almost two weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. And then got transferred to Casa Colina. Um, yeah. It
0: was the intensive care just to support the injury and keep keep everything, like, infection-free and yeah, stabilized.
2: pretty much. Um, kind of being fitted for the back brace and being able to kind of relearn how to sit up and um, mm-hmm. didn't really start much of, like, the PT or OT stuff um, until I got to Casa. But, yeah, that, that first week and a half was pretty... Pretty
0: yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I'm sure you yeah. were all doped
2: up too. Yeah, gosh, that dilated is <laughs> solid stuff. <laughs> Man, what do you feel like? Yeah. Um,
0: like the messaging from the people around you were like, do you feel like people were hopeful for you? Do you feel like they were pitying you? Like, what what was the the feelings that people were giving you during that time? Because I know a lot of people who go through those injuries are like a a diagnosis and stuff. They, I've heard a lot of people express that like, Oh, I felt like I had to take care of everyone around me because everyone else was so upset.
2: Yeah. So the reactions were definitely, it it was definitely a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a lot of people who were very hopeful, very positive, very optimistic and uplifting. And there was a lot of people, including some of my family who were skeptical of my seemingly kind of, um, overly positive outlook mm-hmm. to the point where like they started questioning why I was feeling so hopeful um because again I I I wasn't I wasn't ever scared I wasn't ever worried that I wouldn't be able to move past this kind of choke point in my life. I knew I would be able to make it out and kind of transition back to normal life. And in a lot of ways some of the medical staff were like are you sure you're doing okay? Like, are, are, are you depressed? Like, are you doing okay? Like Drink twice if you're depressed. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're like the psychs We're just like, I mean, you seem fine to me, but like your parents keep asking me to come because they're worried about you. And I'm like, I'm doing okay. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of stuff that got kind of thrown up and regurgitated, um, you know, two, f- four, six months afterwards and being able to kind of cope with all that stuff, but you know that that first kind of initial push through kind of rehab was emotionally not as um you know charged as maybe some had thought. Mm-hmm. Um I was pretty much just determined to get from point A to point B and that's sort of, you know, just a another little insight. I remember the psychologist being like, okay, give me a list of three things that you want to accomplish at, you know, Casa Colina." And I said something like, I want to be able to get back to full independence. I want to be able to drive again. And I want to be able to get outside. And he goes, you're the first person I've ever talked to with a spinal cord injury who hasn't mentioned that they want to walk again. Wow. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I'm very surprised. And I wasn't super concerned with kind of that aspect because I knew that walking wasn't the most important thing to me, mm-hmm. but the most important thing was getting back to, you know, the outdoor world and being able to experience things in the same way that I remember experiencing them. Cause I've always had a very really deep connection with nature and just movement in general, um, and just being physically stimulated. And so that was my biggest concern, but yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Which I feel like too, like, I maybe you know, this was a different time. Obviously it was before you were involved in, adaptive athletics and like this community of, of crushers. But I feel like the thing with the outdoors is like, if that's what ground to like, you always have it, mm-hmm. you know, and that can be really comforting for a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the beginning stages in terms of kind of getting back to relative normalcy. I mean, after getting through my rehab stuff, um, ended up making it back home within a few months and then, um, relearning how to do just the most mundane tasks like doing laundry and dishes and (laughs) getting dressed in the morning was just really, really hard work. Um, I mean, granted the, the whole team at Casa did an excellent job of preparing me for that, but you know, that's, that was the narrative that kept, um, getting pushed my way was, you know, the real rehab is going to start when you're back home. Um, and that was definitely an understatement. It was, it was hard. Um, ended up you know, learning how to do the whole wheelies and, um, <laughs> trying to get up curbs and <laughs> ramps and stuff and definitely fell more than a few times. And Still you know, I was watching, sometimes. I was, I was <laughs> just <laughs> imagine this like, you know, this super like overly confident crusher in a wheelchair being like, okay, I'm going to do that. And then watching all these OTs, like going up a wheelie, up a ramp, like up an incline in a wheelie and being like, Oh, I'm going to do that. And then attempting that and just completely falling back and (laughs) nearly cracking my head open (laughs) multiple times. (laughs) So that was, that was me. So it got to the point where like, and I mean, this is, this is a, this is kind of where I transitioned to climbing. It got to the point where all of the physical rehab got to, you know, just to be blunt, like was pretty easy for me. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways with my athletic background and having had that strength foundation, in a sense, like i more or less trained for this injury because I had all this, you know, upper body strength, and I was already half evolved into a monkey. And so, <laughs> being able to work through those transfers and being able to do all this sort of these daily tasks was um, pretty almost like unsettling and unsettlingly easy. Yeah, where like it didn't make it. Yeah, people started to kind of question that. They're like you're having a pretty easy time with this. Um, I mean, I feel like
0: that's the power of like being athletic young, you know, like if you have the coordination and the strength and that mindset that like, I'm just going to do it. Like that makes that process so much easier. I feel like. Yeah. than if you were just a floppy McGinnis.
2: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and that is the unfortunate reality of a lot of folks who Mm -hmm. don't have that foundation and have a really hard time transitioning through those kind of beginning stages of recovery. So, but Mm -hmm. you know, With all
3: of that being said, like you've always had this like drive and determination and perseverance and just like positive outlook on life, but it like also didn't mean that you didn't struggle and you didn't like process it over, over, over months and years later.
2: And I think that's sort of where my whole transition into climbing came from because I needed a new activity. I was like, well, (laughs) I got to figure out something. At first I was like, Oh, hand cycling maybe that would be my kind of groove and then being on a stationary hand cycle inside of a building was just like, <laughs> Oh, maybe not.
0: you like, Oh, I'm just back in PT right oh, now. Yeah. I'm just
2: <laughs> moving my arms in circles. Um, which, you know, what some people really enjoy that. But for me, you know, I, I needed something a little bit more. And then my PT, Corey, who was a godsend, she was amazing. Um, it's like, you should try climbing. And then we ended up at the stronghold gym in LA and, um, yeah, worked with the adaptive clinic or the adaptive team that was there and worked with Quinn who I think still heads the adaptive group over there and um met Jake Sanchez like three or four <laughs> sessions in and then he's like you shouldn't consider competing what and a great Jake, mascot to, yeah ja- <laughs> oh, love Jake Jake is um Jake's a lower amputee he's also a fellow adaptive climber he's been in the game for a while mm-hmm. and uh he's yeah he kind of planted that seed and was like you shouldn't consider this like you're you're awesome and i was like oh man thanks
0: my favorite thing about the adaptive community is that they're just always trying to like
2: one of us kind of
0: thing (laughs) like every person they see like i see an amputee at the bank and i'm like you want to be a rock climber
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's a very inviting group i feel very grateful to have found this community of paraclimbers because it's it's really unlike anything else and yeah um Yeah, they definitely accepted me with open arms.
0: And I feel like too, like there, there's a lot of categories, if you will, or disabilities that like are pretty prevalent in the, in the climbing community, adaptive climbing community, especially, but like a super driven seated climber is kind of rare. You're sort of like the unicorn.
2: In a sense. Yeah. Um, the idea of, (laughs) I think the first sort of barrier is (laughs) the idea of like, letting your wheelchair go on the ground because in a lot of ways people get attached to their wheelchair mm-hmm. and they see it as an extension of their body and kind of, um, a tool in a sense that they can't leave behind. And I think making that separation is difficult for people because now you're under your own strength. And then the second part is the idea of campusing <laughs> a route with just your arms <laughs> and no legs and limited core strength. Um, it's pretty intimidating. it's, pretty gnarly. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have had the background that I, that I do to make that transition because in a lot of ways I feel like it was easier for me than maybe someone else who's already been established in maybe another wheelchair sport for some time, you know, if it's like wheelchair basketball or Mm -hmm. hockey or something. Um, but it's, it's gnarly. It's, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean, climbing in general is kind of like a, sort of a brutal sport to get into just to begin with. Yeah. Much less like okay, you're you're pretty recently out from your injury, and someone's saying just go, just <laughs> yeah. your arms, like you'll figure it out, it's all good. Yeah,
1: <laughs> like and I it, imagine that turns away quite a number. Of it's people. crazy how you like went yeah. from injury to here's the sport that I'm going to start doing now yeah. to like oh I'm going to compete now like within yeah. this. I mean, how long? Like, what is the time frame there? It seems like it's so short. It's it is it is very short.
0: Well, weren't we in Ohio? on your one year
2: one year so I competed in I competed in paraclimbing nationals on 2019 yeah 2019 paraclimbing nationals uh exactly one year and one day after my injury
0: yeah because I remember we all got to Ohio I don't think I'd ever met you yet Izzy I think we had Uh, met once but it was like brief brief and we were just sitting around the dinner table. I was like a couple of beers in, and you're like, "Today's my one year anniversary." Yeah. I was like,
2: "What?" <laughs> you're like, "What? What are you doing here?" Yeah,
0: yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it just speaks volume to to I think your character more than anything else. You know?
2: Yeah, it's also pain tolerance.
0: Also, yeah, a lot of pain tolerance yeah. and just like a lot of patience to deal uh, with like the
2: challenges of that. Yeah. You know, it's it's a weird thing to have to kind of change your focus. Not only is it a physical kind of strain, but it's also just a big mental barrier to get over to be like, okay, I'm gonna have to like, not only is my back in pain, but I'm gonna have to forget about the, back in my, the, the pain in my back and then focus on the pain in my hands and my arms for a <laughs> second so that I can do this fucking route. Um, so it's kind of sh- switching your, um, your pain channels in a way. I feel and, like
0: I have this philosophy. Hear me
2: out. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Mountain biking kind of did it for me a little bit mm-hmm. because of all the things I've been afraid of, trad climbing has generally been like one of my higher fear inducer puckering kind of sports. And then I started getting into mountain biking a lot more because I grew up like mountain biking. But when you're a kid and you're made of jello, like you're not afraid of anything. Yeah. But re-exploring it as an adult, like set my fear threshold a lot higher than anything that was not like throwing my body down a mountain on wheels felt like not scary anymore, <laughs> which I feel like is maybe what you did. Like you just set your suffer threshold really high really yeah, early on,
2: really early on. And, uh, it's only, yeah, being pushed forward. <laughs> That's a good point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just got to do a couple things that like really
2: suck. Yeah. And like any- breaking your back. Yeah, yeah. Like
0: anything that's not breaking your back, you're like, oh, I've got this. Oh yeah, I got <laughs> No big yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is climbing been like since then? Cause I know like first nationals for anyone or first competition of any sport is kind of just like a whirlwind. Yeah. But you've sort of been putting your nose to the grindstone a little bit.
2: Yeah. Um, after first nationals, um, I think the the spark really sort of began to, um, blossom in a sense. And I was like, man, I, I'm really into this. Like I'm really into this sport and kind of what it has to offer. And kind of like you said, there's not a lot of seated climbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so then just a few months later, the, the paragliding world championships were, um, held in Briançon, France. And then, um, yeah, there was only eight of us in the whole world, two from the U S two from Austria, two from Italy, and then two from, Japan and uh yeah just because I was in the top three um at nationals you know I automatically punched my ticket mm-hmm. to go to France and then um yeah and then that's kind of where everything exploded I was like being on the world stage only after a little bit is <laughs> cri- kind of crazy like in a way it felt almost like imposter syndrome just because I-, I feel like I shouldn't have been there I shouldn't have been able to be in that competitive field, having had climbed so, so little. Mm-hmm. And that was just kind of the the reality of being in a, a sport. And then within that, a very small category of that sport that there's just not a lot of participants in. So I think that was a big um, kind of uh, stimuli just to be able to be like, okay, I want to really see how far this thing can go. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, the the way I like to think about it is we spend, you know, in the, in the kind of normal conventional sense, we spend the majority of our lives on our legs. Right. Mm -hmm. And we spend time building up these leg muscles and you kind of teach your legs to take the load and, you know, eventually you learn how to crawl and then walk and then run. And then eventually you just spend all day on your legs. But who's to say that you couldn't do something like that with your arms? Yeah. Right. Like if you spend 20 plus years climbing with just your arms, like who's to say how strong you could Mm go? And that was kind of like the mindset that I had. I'm like, you know, I'm young. I feel very fortunate to be in this position to kind of push this sport forward. And I just kind of want to see how far it goes. And so that's kind of what's always in the back of my head. I'm like, you know, people have done this before, right? We've had our, um, our outdoor outdoor crushers who have kind of scaled L cap. Like, um, gosh, Tim, Tim Timmy O'Neill's brother. Um, Sean. Yeah. Sean. And then, uh, gosh,
0: Enoch and did it. Yeah. He has a spina bifida.
2: There's, um, is it Mark?
0: Mark. Mark Wellman? Mark or- Wellman. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mark
2: Wellman. I met Mark Wellman. He's a really cool guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but these guys who have done, you know, stuff like this before, but not, maybe not to the extent, mm-hmm. maybe not to the, um, on the world stage in a sense in the, in, the, in a competition setting. Um, so yeah, it was kind of just new territory and I was just really excited to explore that.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting to be like, to see other people doing their, their version of climbing and kind of like finding your niche through competition climbing. And
2: yeah.
0: it's so interesting because you don't know what's possible because so often our imagination is limited by what we believe we're capable of. Mm-hmm. And it's half the time bullshit to be honest <laughs> as like has been proven by all these crazy athletes. Yeah. But what was it? How is it like traveling as
2: someone who uses a wheelchair? I know it's awful. Yeah, it's So <laughs> bad. Um, I was, I was really fortunate to have a, a mentor kind of through my recovery process. There's, um, uh, a former Paralympian, his name's, uh, Dean, Dean McCabe, I think is his last name. Um, he's a, he's a quadriplegic, so he's got a higher, higher level injury than myself. And, um, so he was a part of the Paralympic team for rugby for, um, and won the gold with the Paralympic team. And, uh, I just remember being in my hospital bed. He's like, you can do this. Like you can be in a Paralympian if you, if you want to. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like that sounds cool. Like, I'm yeah, sick. I think I'll do that. <laughs> um, and, um, so he kind of gave me a bunch of tips about traveling and he's like, you gotta, you know, deflate your cushion before you take off. Cause the pressure is gonna, you know, rush in and make it really tough. Um, you know, really rock hard. The seat cushion is gonna, um, expand and you know, stuff about using catheters mm-hmm. and being able to navigate an airport and, you know, saying one thing to someone who's trying to help you onto the flight and being able to put your wheel down and be like, no, this is how it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where, yeah, I've, I've flown, um, I don't want to say all over the world, but I've, I've, I've taken a few trips now where I know how, how it goes and it yeah. just takes time to kind of learn that. And, uh, Navigate that process because it's, you know, in a lot of ways just super unaccommodating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did some big,
3: horror well, stories for sure of like, yeah, what airlines can do with wheelchairs. Yeah. But luckily, we've had really we've had some good luck experiences. You know,
2: there's all those stories about, you know, the wheelchairs getting crushed or just mm-hmm. you know, like being taken. um, really poor care of and, you know, and
0: what I think a lot of people don't realize is that wheelchairs are custom made. You yeah. can't just like order one off Amazon no. and like have Jeff Bezos stork, like drop it off on your doorstep the next day.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. these are, these are custom chairs and, um, yeah, mine's pretty, pretty well built, mm-hmm. which is fortunate.
0: Well, um, it has to be for the things it you make yourself be. into. Right.
2: But you know, that's not always the case for yeah. people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, I was friends with this woman. Well, I was coaching her for a while. I would consider her a friend. Um, who was using a wheelchair, but she was on Medicare Mm. and someone broke her. I think it was like getting onto a bus or something like something Mm. janky happened to her wheelchair. And like for her, the Medicare process to get a new wheelchair can take a year to get approved for that, you know? And it's just crazy. It is crazy. And I think it's crazy to see all these adaptive athletes traveling to countries, you know, like the United States is not accessible despite the ADA laws, as we all know. Yeah, And then like seeing these amazing athletes traveling to countries where, they can't even get on the subway. They can't even get into their bathroom. Like, right. It's just so
2: wild. It is. Um, and I think the most extreme example of that was being in Russia, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is a good segue. Oh into yeah. segue us into Russia. So. Let's <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> we need like a little chime. <laughs> <Bing>. <laughs> like <clip>. Moscow. <laughs> <Limbo>. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I got the opportunity to go to Russia this past summer to climb, At the world Championships, so this was my second world championships which is pretty awesome and uh being in that space it like in a lot of ways it puts into perspective of how accessible the us is you know there's obviously still a lot of issues there's a lot of improvements to be made but russia is just a different world like (laughs) where it's such an old city like so we were in moscow um we were in like the heart of moscow and ramps aren't a thing there like the, the like the ramps just don't exist
0: <laughs> we like you just the- go up steps only
2: <laughs> <laughs> so so there's you know these you know there's not crosswalks in Russia there's 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 small crosswalks but in order to get past kind of the main intersections the main kind of multi-lane highways uh you go underground into the subway ah. system so there's these big steep flights of stairs and there are these like very janky kind of tracks for strollers and stuff but to go down them in a wheelchair is pretty wild um to say the least it took three people and (laughs) you know in a a stronger than average wheelchair user right uh where you know to be realistic it would be near impossible for someone else to kind of navigate that Mm -hmm. with help let alone on their own Yeah. so in addition to that uh the only accessible bathroom in the entire city that I went to was the bathroom inside of our venue. Oh my God. Our brand new state of the art venue that was built in like just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, who I'm sure had to put in a accessible bathroom, but ev- there was not one single accessible bathroom in That's the entire, crazy. on our entire trip that I saw. Yeah. And, um, steps everywhere, steps to get in and out of shops and restaurants. And, um, you know, again, I, I'm able to navigate these situations, but, in a general sense to expect people in chairs to navigate these areas is just completely absurd. So it's not like the U S has more people who have spinal cord injuries. You know, Russia I'm sure has plenty of folks with spinal cord injuries. And the reality is the environment is just,
0: they're just housebound. They're just housebound because
2: they can't even, you know, manage the outdoor terrain because it's so gruesome you know, on top of that, it's like cobblestone, cobblestone streets and these big, um, you know, just all these barriers. Um, it's pretty, uh, exhausting. Which I think
0: too, like speaks volumes to the fact that like people with disabilities are so forced into whether it's poverty or social aid or like just terrible living conditions, because if you can't even Get to the grocery store, get somewhere to go to work because your city doesn't have a ramp. Like what, you know, we force, we force people into these situations where they can't have a great life and they can't have meaningful employment or meaningful hobbies, you know,
2: really gnarly. It is. And I think that's a testament sort of just a small pivot. So I was, I was listening to a talk from um, someone who I just recently found who I'm really um, excited to learn more about. Her name is Sarah Hendren. She does a lot of really great work um close to boston in terms of um kind of fabricating and helping build different projects and devices for folks with disabilities she had a really great quote of kind of distinguishing um disabled people and the term kind of people with disabilities mm-hmm. and i think the difference there is disabled people refers to people in a disabled world, mm-hmm. right? It's a disabled environment. It's not that the people themselves are disabled. It's that the, the surrounding environment, the world that they live in is inadequate for their, absolutely for their kind of, um, you know, day-to-day livelihood. Yeah. And so I think that's an important distinguish um, uh, thing to distinguish. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, the world is hard. It's just hard to, um, navigate.
0: I mean, the world definitely caters to a neurotypical four limbed fully, you know, whatever functional means anymore world, like a very stereotypical human, which is just not representative of who lives in this world. You know, it's so crazy. Like when you look at the rates of people living with disabilities or living on the autism spectrum or living with mental health issues, like they outnumber the stereotypical perfect person we think of. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've put nothing in place to make a role for them.
2: Right. I think we, and we just had the, the Paralympics right in 2020 mm-hmm. and you know, they came out with a st- statistic. Um, it's like 1.2 billion people have a disability yeah. in the world where it's like, that's like over a seventh of everyone in the world, <laughs> you know, that's crazy. Um, I don't know, you know, how they sort of, what sort of spectrum they kind of apply that data to, but you know, that's, that's a strong, large portion of yeah. our world population that has a disability.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting to me that athletics are kind of this bridge to break people out of that, mm. that place that the rest of the world puts them in, you know, especially adaptive climbing because who the heck thinks the climbers are just like, you know who should do this? Just people with disabilities. <laughs> let's do it. Like, let's, ma- yeah. let's make this happen. Yeah. But it's like, I think that's the power of adaptive climbing is like you get to not be in that mandated place that this world
2: puts you in. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think, which is a, which is a, a testament to sort of the type of people that gravitate towards climbing, Mm -hmm. right? Because in a lot of ways, a lot of wheelchair sports, it's kind of, kind of laid out for you. There's a certain set of rules, you know, you're, you're kind of bound to this particular vehicle, this mode of transport, but for climbing, you're kind of navigating this terrain on your own and you have to kind of figure it out on your own, what system works for you and what, you know, what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so even within our little categories, we all have our kind of differences and, for example, like the folks in my category for seated climbers, you know, we all have, you know, not all of us have spinal cord injuries. Some of us have spina bifida, some of us, you know, have other conditions. And with that, there's these small, you know, differences in ability and, yeah. you know, what's capable. And so, um, I think that's kind of just one of the many, many beautiful aspects of climbing and paraclimbing is being able to kind of pave your own path and being able to move under your own power and it's, it's not straightforward. And yeah. I think that's maybe a little bit of a deterrent for people just because, you know, it's not straightforward.
0: Yeah. I think climbing is definitely a sport you get to express yourself in. And if you're someone who likes rules and structure mm-hmm. and rigidity, and you like to just score a goal and that's yeah. the accomplishment. Like
2: <laughs> I, I know what I need to do. <laughs> climbing can <be> challenging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so besides, you know, climbing as your sport and your expression, you also work in the climbing industry now. I do. How's that
2: been? Uh it's been a roller coaster. Um so you know, I work at Mesa Rim now and um which is where you work mm-hmm. and it's such a an amazing community and it's so uplifting and you know, I've been to a lot of other gyms kind of all over the country and all over the you know, all over the world now, and for the most part they're pretty inaccessible. Um, you know, there's a small there's a couple of small exceptions like for instance, like the, the climbing gym in Santa Cruz is Pacific edge, which has been around since like the early eighties. I think it's one of the first commercial climbing gyms in the country and they just happened to put a ramp in there, like a built in <laughs> ramp being like they didn't, I, I don't think they anticipated wheelchair users or like mobility aid users to use the ramp, but it's like, it's in there. It makes it pretty easy. And so that's, that's a pretty nice privilege. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, for the majority of all the other gyms that I've been to, um, it's pretty inaccessible. And it's difficult and it's intimidating because the first thing you see in the gym is this big mat that you have to be able to get over. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mesa Room did a really good job of just hearing me and kind of my opinions and kind of what I needed from the space and what I needed from the team to be able to accommodate me. And they were just, you know, super psyched on it. And Adam, our facility <laughs> guy at Mission oh, Valley, shout out who to we Adam. just love. <laughs> He's, uh, he's just so, he was just determined to just like do it. Like he was just like, hell yeah. Like I'll put in some ramps for you. Like,
0: I just remember being like, Hey Adam, it would be okay. So to, to give background, Adam yeah. does like all the facility stuff from Rim. He's been there since I've been there, which has been a long time. But we were like, you know what would be sick, dude? Like a couple more ramps, yeah. like here and there. Yeah, just and a couple. he's like pupil silent. <laughs> he's like, Come oh, on it. And then there was a ramp in like two hours later. Yep. Like it was there so There was a simple. ramp in two hours
2: later, and then he put in a couple of ramps in all three of our locations within yeah. two weeks.
0: Yeah. yeah, which is crazy because yeah. I feel like, other gyms have, you know, they're like, oh, we'd have to get like an engineer and talk to the city and get permits <laughs> yeah. and, you know, like put a neon sign on it. And you're but like, it doesn't
1: have to be that difficult. It you know? doesn't have to like, be that difficult. At all. <laughs> you, you
2: just have to refer to pe- the people that are going to be using the ramps or like what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And um, yeah, basically told him and he's like, okay, does this work? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, does this work? And he's like, I'm like, no. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's just an open line of communication and being able to be like, okay, this works. And yeah. then you just replicate that.
0: I always like imagine that process as like someone who's asking for the ramp, like shouting about what they need and someone else being like, we're going to build you a bigger ramp. And you're like, no, I just need a simple ramp. They're like, I got you a bigger ramp. I'll see you in two years when it's done. Yeah. And you're like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Love this.
2: <laughs> so yeah, Adam did, he did the ramps. Um, he lowered some hang boards. He lowered some pull-up bars. He, um, what else did he do? I think those are the two main things, mm-hmm. um, and then just communicating with the route setters as to like, you know, what they could potentially put up and make more accessible in terms of the campusable climbing route. And um, yeah. yeah, I think it was just it was a collective effort to kind of make me feel included and um, make me feel like I was a part of the team. And yeah, I feel, feel very grateful for that.
3: Every yeah. time there's a new route for you, you come home and you're just like
2: <laughs> so psyched. <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh, new train. Um, because they'll it will walk it, you through every move. Yeah, because it can be pretty deterring. Um, you know, naturally that's a very specific style of climbing, uh, just being able to use your arms. So you have to really, you know, I, I, I do have to be fairly picky in terms of what routes to pick, you know, it has to be a perfect, more or less, uh, an overhung, you know, wall angle. Um, if it's vertical, if it's straight vertical, it's pretty tricky because there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of body drag. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need something that's overhung ideally, you know, potentially aggressively overhung, <laughs> which is, uh, limited generally to the, the prows and yeah. the kind of lead climbing caves <laughs> and whatnot. Um, and then you also have to consider kind of the different hold types and you want to make sure everything's pretty positive for the most part. And then you need holds that are fairly close together and there can't be too many gaps in the system, mm-hmm. um, because you want it to be kind of a fluid, um, experience. And so there's all these different variables that you have to consider which and I so, feel
0: like setters like tweak out on,
2: you they know? do like, they, and they're like, Oh, I don't like constraints. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's but they job. also like
0: love a challenge. Right. You know? yeah. It's like, I, I double dog dare you to set this kind of row on the prow. Yeah. And sometimes they're like, Oh, I don't know. But then sometimes they're like, Oh, oh. challenge accepted.
2: <laughs> 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 you know, it's, you know, what's the best part is watching them free run it, free running the <laughs> campus routes. They're like, I made this really hard for you. I'm like, it looks like it. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure to work with everyone. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've, I've really only worked with Jesse, who's the the lead setter at, um, the North city gym, which is the one that I work at. And then mm-hmm. the mission Valley gym that you work at. And I do most of my climbing and training at and the whole kind of team down there is awesome. Yeah. And they do a really good job of kind of checking in with me and seeing, um, what they might be able to build upon or kind of do next.
0: Yeah. And I feel like it's such a symbiotic relationship because over the years, like you have been learning to climb at different gyms and here and there and Santa Cruz and here and, for our setters, like for a lot of them, this is a brand new experience, and so like they're getting to learn a whole new part of their trade mm-hmm. too over over time. And it's not perfect off the bat <laughs> because it's so Definitely new not, yeah. to a lot of route setters to set these kind of routes. But it's like you're just by being a climber, like you're also enabling other people to like learn and refine what they view as climbing, which is so rad. Yeah, and, and so- I think it- the route setters learn something new at every you know like competition they set for
3: the adaptive athletes too and like sometimes it works in your favor sometimes it doesn't but then you can like come back and tell your route setters kind of what you need to train for
2: right and you know it's 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 a process of you know on one hand i feel like the the route setters especially like in the comp setting don't necessarily take a lot of feedback Mm -hmm. which i feel like i wish there was an easier sort of channel for that information to go through, which like I a think nice Google form, something yeah. like that being like, Hey, <laughs> you're going to be competing in this competition in this category. Like give us some feedback, like let us know what you're thinking. That'd yeah. be nice. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't been the case yet. So like, for example, in France for the world championships, one of the first world championships in 2019, uh, they put us on these two qualifying routes that were, uh, adjacent to the main sort of overhang, um, where all the other kind of climbs were, and it was on this straight vertical wall. And then on top of that, they set all these volumes. (laughs) And then on top of that, uh, you know, it was just, just uh, like absurdly burly and just uh, like, just not fun at all. And then these climbers who, you know, don't wear elbow and knee pads just come down with blood dripping Mm -hmm. through, like off their elbows and like through their pants. And it was just like, yeah, that's definitely not supposed to happen. Let alone on a world stage. Yeah. And so, Fortunately, we didn't have any of those sort of issues with this this most recent competition, but mm. there's still so much room to improve on.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like ask people what they need is such an easy simplistic yeah. thing to do, yet it just like you would think, blows right past people. I know. <laughs> my favorite like well, of all my favorite recent memories, but one of them was at practice the other day, you were following a lead climb up the prow mm-hmm. and I turned around and all the setters were at the little heckle counter and <laughs> the, it was yeah. just like aggressively writing down <laughs> notes. And yeah. I was like, this is the best way to do it. Like yeah. you don't have, I feel like route setting sometimes can have kind of like a weird ego to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: People think they're just the hot, the hottest thing on the market, but it's like, you can learn so much by just talking to people and watching people and yeah, setting outside your comfort zone.
1: For sure. Yeah. It's really cool to see that like people are actually embracing it though. Mm-hmm. You know, like as far, as long as I've known you, like it's so cool to see these gyms and facilities that are like, yes, like let's, let's try and do this, you know? Yeah.
2: yeah. But given that the, it's only a select few, yeah.
1: you is, know, yeah. I have had some pretty poor
2: experiences. I feel like I've chatted about the the positive stuff, but I have had my fair share of negative experiences, which, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to get into just because we're focusing on the the good stuff. But you know, it's, it's definitely a mixed bag across the board. Like some people just don't like fundamentally don't understand the other side of it. They're like, well, why do you need it that way? Or why do you need to climb something in that way? Well, I'm like, well, that's the easiest way to have fun. That's, you know, that's the most important thing to have something, you know, a terrain that you can sort of express yourself on and Mm -hmm. kind of flow through. And I, you know, even climbing at mission Valley, the the gym that I climb at, you know, sometimes I'll be on a route and I'll try something new and it'll be more on a vertical route it doesn't have a lot of, um, angle to it. And I'll come down and be like, that wasn't very fun. And then I'll hop on just this overhung, just jug haul that, you know, isn't technically too difficult, but I was like, man, that was fun. (laughs) Yeah, Like, it's just so liberating being able to fly through a route and not have any of that body drag because, you know, you spend your entire, you know, most of your waking hours, or at least for me, like I spend so much time of my day worrying about where my legs are at all Mm -hmm. times. And then being able to just kind of leave my chair on the ground and being able to just like fly through a route and just focus on what's ahead rather than like what's underneath is just the most liberating feeling. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing to be able to kind of just separate myself from those, um, those tensions that are on the ground.
0: Yeah. 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 I feel like you, you kind of touched on a point that gave me a memory when you were saying like people sometimes question, Why you do it, there Mm -hmm. was a... So the adaptive program at MaceRam has been around for nine years. So it's like nothing new. Like people see it, you know? Right, right. And there was a time I was working with Vivian who walks with crutches. And some guy came up to me after she had gotten down from a climb and she was like off getting water or something. And he's like, I just don't get why some of these climbers climb. Like, why don't you just go do something easier, like swim? (laughs) And I was like, I am so happy I'm wearing my coaching shirt because I just want to punch you in the throat. Yeah. And I feel like the climbing industry, despite how positive and progressive it's been with accepting adaptive climbers, like some people just don't get that they people with disabilities also want to challenge. Yeah. Like you don't want to just climb five, four, like you want, you specifically want like high quality, hard routes right. that are climbable, yeah. you know? And I don't know why it that's such a groundbreaking earth shattering <laughs> idea
2: for climbing it, gyms. It does blow people's mind on occasion. <laughs> you know, I've been in these situations at different gyms where I'm just kind of looking at a route and kind of moving through the moves on my own, just on the ground, kind of looking up at the route. And then this like random person will come up behind me and, come up behind me and they'll be like yeah it'd be really cool to watch you climb like it'd be cool if you could get on the wall." I'm like yeah it would be (laughs) like it would be really cool they just assume that I don't climb yeah and then there's the people that are like I'm sorry this is this is a really like uh, this is a bad question but like do you climb and I'm like
0: is it like while you're also wearing your staff shirt working
2: yeah (laughs) yeah I'll be just like hanging out wearing my staff shirt and they'll be like how like how do you do that and I'm like
0: I don't know just you should just it. be like, no, I actually don't climb. I just love yeah. the smell of dirty
2: rental shoes. Yeah. That's why I come here. I just <laughs> like sticking my fingers in the chalk and making, you know, circles on the climbing walls and making little smiley faces and hearts. <laughs> I really just love the aroma of a good sweaty.
1: climb. I don't gym. climb. I'm just an artist. Yeah. <laughs> chalk artist. It's chalk. only
2: socially acceptable
3: when
0: kids ask you. <laughs>
1: I know. I, like, I love kids how do though. How you climb? <laughs> that's, it's like the, the kids are so pure
2: and they're so kind of unassuming and that's why I love chatting with kids and, um, I can't stand when people preface the questions being like, I know this is a really bad question. And like, I know you're gonna hate me when I ask this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, just just Why ask. are you assuming that Why are you assuming like just ask questions? <laughs> I, I you know, there's no need to assume any which way. It's just like just ask. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's
0: my favorite. Important. Oh, God, I keep saying my favorite. These are all such good memories. Was <laughs> Rob from the front desk the other day? I was like, the first time I climbed a tanner, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just went for it.
2: <laughs> I yeah. was like, what a. Which what is a, why I think Rob and I connected so early on. Like, we climbed a few times together before you got hired at Mission Valley. And uh, he was just in it. Like, he was just like, let's fucking do it. Like, let's just climb. Let's see how it goes. He's like, can you belay? I was like, yeah, dude, I got you. He's like, all right, sweet. Hops on the wall. And then he's just like, okay. Like, yeah. he just trusted me and yeah. I trusted him. And like, um, that was pretty cool. And, um, it's a, that's a very rare yeah. kind of thing to have with someone.
0: Yeah. I think the Mission Valley staff have seen so many, cause like the adaptive program is mostly there. So they've seen yeah. so many people come through the door, right. whether they're blind or they're in a wheelchair, they're missing both their hands. And they're just like, yeah, everyone who comes in here is like rad. <laughs> yeah. <talk.
1: laughs>
0: yeah. And it's cool that you can just set that, that tone and people
2: ride it out. So. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah.
1: Why yeah. do you think it is part. that like people you know, they have this pensiveness when they, when they approach you and, and the way that they ask questions and like, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. but I'm curious, but why, why the apology? It's a good question.
2: And, you know, I don't know the perfect answer to that, but it, it does just seem like, um, it's a largely ableist world. It's people that haven't been exposed to people with disabilities or who use mobility aids, you know, pushing the limits of a sport that doesn't get a lot of recognition. It doesn't get a lot of representation. And, you know, we're, we're moving towards that, but it's, um, you know, when you see something that you haven't seen before, you automatically assume that, you know, you assume, assume the worst. I think, um, people just have, you know, somewhat closed off perceptions of what a climber is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And if they don't fit that cookie cutter mold, then their, their mind is blown. And they're like, what are you doing here? Like, how do you do this? Like kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I think that's a super good point. And it brings me to the thought of La Sportiva. Yeah. Because when we talk about representation, I think like a huge part of it is that brands and companies are just not pursuing the opportunities to like put that out on their, on their platform. And I know La Sportiva just recently started sponsoring like full team sponsor, a climber, I should find his name, um, who is a, like kind of a beginner climber, Mm -hmm. but stoked also not the classic body type that you see on a professional athlete. Like he is a fully grown man and a fat body and climbs beginner routes. And La Sportiva made this decision to have that in this world and have representation for people who are not just able-bodied, waif thin little crushers from Denver. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what do you think? I'm trying to find his name really fast on Instagram. Um, what do you think like the hesitation is for brands to start backing Adoptive climbers.
2: I think in a lot of ways, there's this expectation to have climbers outside In a lot of ways being able to find yourself and express yourself in sort of, um, a space that's more conducive to your condition is really, um, special to people. And so I think in a lot of ways, the, uh, the, the majority of the light from these brands kind of focuses on the outdoor scene and the reality is that a lot of climbers focus on the indoor scene just because. It's a little more accommodating. And so I think it'd be really fantastic down the road to be able to kind of facilitate more of, um, you know, uh, action towards access and being able to, um, make it easier for folks to get outside. And, you know, I've been climbing for three and a half years now, and I've only been outside once. And, you know, that's largely a testament to where we are kind of in the world. We're in Southern California and, a lot of the outdoor crags are just super slabby and mm-hmm. not super accommodating for um you know campusable stuff but you know in a lot of ways uh it's just difficult to get outside and um yeah i think that that's part of it um yeah
0: yeah it's like yeah. if you're not super strong outdoor climber it's like you that's the value that these brands are looking for but i found this guy his name's Drew Holsey mm. he him um and he's backed by Las Hydro Hydroflask, Organic Climbing, Rhino Skin, Chuck Cartel, nice, which is a lot of brands. Can it? Can I see it? Yeah. Because. Um, and I remember when, like, the
2: oh yeah, I definitely I follow this. Guy. Yeah, yeah, I know.
0: Him. When yeah, the announcement killer. of his sponsorship came out, <laughs> I made the mistake of sleuthing around on Mountain Project, which <laughs> I shouldn't have done. Should have just stayed out of the forums. Um, but yeah, he's a big dude. He yeah. has a, a different body than we see in, in climbing media, and people were. They were like, I don't understand why sport people would do this. Like, and kind of, kind of making like a joke out of it, which was a disgusting.
1: That kind of blows my mind that there was that kind of reaction on mountain projects.
0: People were like mad about it. That's wild. And I just, I don't understand why climbers are so against that diversity in their media. Mm -hmm. You know,
1: it's also like maybe a part of the the internet troll culture. Yeah. Like (laughs) God, things happen and people just want to react to it in a negative way on the internet and they can hide behind it.
0: Yeah. 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 It's like I feel and it's it's different than adaptive climbing too, because I feel like adaptive climbers get very uh like inspiration porned mm-hmm. in a way. Like, in a lot of
2: ways. Yeah, yeah. I like that's such a massive thing. Yeah. Um like if it such was a, like a
0: an adaptive climber that Lost Wortiba sponsored, be like, oh my god, this this guy in a wheelchair is amazing. Yeah. But it's like someone in a fat body, they're like, What the
2: Yeah. And <laughs> it's that's so that, weird. It kind of leads me to like another point where it's a big sort of point of contention for the adaptive community, just being someone's source of inspiration because Mm -hmm. it really matters about intention. And, um, and like, I get so many people, so many people on a daily basis. Um, not so much with the, the San Diego, San Diego community, but, um, it does happen occasionally where people will say, Oh my gosh, you're so inspiring. Like you're such a crusher. Um, you know, now I don't have an excuse. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you didn't have an excuse in the first place. Yeah, like, well, focus on like, excuse if you're not- like <laughs> why are you, like, why are you focusing on like the fact that I'm climbing without legs? Like mm-hmm. focus on like, I don't know, my work ethic or like, like something that I yeah. have and not what I don't have. Yeah. Um, I think people are quick to kind of isolate the, the negative part of the climbing, the, the, this, the, the, the part of my climbing that I lack mm-hmm. and they latch onto that. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh that's fucking cool. Yeah. And it is cool. Like there's no taking away from that. But like that shouldn't be your sole source of inspiration. Right. You should be like, you know, you should just have more of um kind of an unassuming outlook on that.
0: Yeah. And it's like you're you're ostracizing people by making them be your little inspiration doll, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's like why don't you just come up be my climbing partner? Yeah.
2: Just ask <laughs> me a few be- questions and let's climb together. Like yeah. you don't need anything more than that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you a- feel
1: like a call at all to you know, talk to people that have been in, inj- have in- similar injuries and kind of don't know what to do with themselves at that point and say, yeah, like get into climbing, you know, it's, yeah. it can be done. And
2: yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I, I would love that more than anything. The reality is that there aren't a lot of seated climbers. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's, there's folks out there. It's just, it's difficult to pull them away from stability and kind of circling back to what I was saying, there's all these other established wheelchair sports and they're a lot more secure and they're a lot more exciting, but there's, there's a handful of us who are kind of pushing these limits. Like one of the examples is, um, I always butcher his last name, but it's the, the wheelchair motor, like wheelchair MX guy. And he's just like doing double backflips on like big ramps. And then it's, uh, like Trevor bike. No, no. On, on, in his wheelchair, like, uh, a
1: motorized.
2: So it's, it's, uh, his nickname is wheels. It's like, um, he's, all over Instagram. They made a hot wheels of his wheelchair. He's a fucking badass. (laughs)
0: See, that's what I'm saying. Is like, why can't like, I always try to not make the adaptive athlete, the spokesperson for adaptive climbing. Like you should not have to be the one to like, go tell other people in wheelchairs to be a climber. Like brands should be helping to get that message out. You know, it's like, sick hot wheels made someone in a wheelchair who does backflips in a wheelchair like yeah, that's rad it is you know
2: yeah i mean there's 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 a handful of i mean like um like trevor kennison yeah like he's he's amazing, amazing. <laughs> he's fucking outrageous uh he's so cool uh, yeah and there's 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 a few of us who are kind yeah. of pushing those boundaries at some mm-hmm. but like you said it, it doesn't have to be just us that's kind yeah. of um you know sitting on our soapbox or right um yeah I kind think, of proclaiming you know, yeah
0: one person can only reach so many people, but when companies start to like make advertising that has adaptive athletes or they start sponsoring adaptive athletes, or they start you know like evolve makes a climbing foot for amputees mm-hmm. like those are the kind of steps that are necessary to reach this like huge audience
2: yeah so. I think part of it too is being able to i think the the number one thing for me at least, and you know there's there's different priorities for um different circumstances for folks that have different disabilities, but for my personal situation, I think the biggest thing is access. Right. Mm -hmm. And like I was saying, you know, we live in a part of the world where there's just not a lot of accessible climbing. And so that's not to say that there isn't accessible climbing elsewhere. You know, there's all these really cool spots. There's one of my competitors and one of my really good friends, uh, his name's Angelino. He's from Austria and he's, a the reigning world champ I got second in Russia so we're, we're kind of one and two and we're just kind of pushing this forward and like pushing boundaries and redefining what it means to be a campus climber
0: is there like a secret little like DM shit talking that goes on between you guys at all
2: <laughs> not exactly no he it's happens, so
0: respectful
2: he happens they to like be
0: trade beta yeah. everything I'm like oh, yeah it's your competitor
2: <laughs> he happens to be the nicest person in the whole world of
0: course like the two uh, nicest yeah, people I just can't be mad at him you can't be mad at him
2: and he's so he's so dedicated and he's so strong but, which is all to say that he just happens to have just this amazing access, mm-hmm. um, where he was just showing me all these pictures on his phone. We were backstage waiting for our medals in Moscow, which isn't a flex, but we were, that's just how it goes. <laughs> and uh, we were just waiting backstage and, uh, he was showing these, me, me, these videos of him campusing. And I was like, Oh, where is that? He's like, it's five minutes from my house. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you can just like belay out like of your the, car. Yeah. Like it. the perfect overhung <laughs> crag yeah. that would just all the pockets you would ever want. Um, so stuff is out there. Yeah, it's out there, totally. and um, yeah, I just I want to go out and yeah, send it. Yeah. I mean,
0: I think too, like this stuff does exist here, but it's on like the trail makers and trail mm-hmm. maintenance organizations to like a make trails accessible for people in wheelchairs to get to
2: those places. Yeah, you know, I would love that, and yeah. I I think you you probably have a lot more insights into the kind of improvements because a I haven't been out there mm-hmm. and b like I don't know like what's attainable. Yeah. Um so I, I really love the idea of, you know, working with different companies and being able to kind of, kind of set off on these initiatives that help, you know, better access or at least, um, provide better access and yeah. just make it like get climber psyched. Like if you, if you're psyched to climb outside, you know, access shouldn't be the, the deterrent. It yeah, should be, definitely not. you know, the actual difficulty of the climb or it, it doesn't necessarily need to be the difficulty of the climb, but it can be um, it should be something else. Yeah. It shouldn't, you, you should be able to get to the foot of the crag mm-hmm. and you should be able to look up at a route and be like, yeah, that one seems cool. Or maybe that, not that one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It really bums me out that the people who have like the passion, the drive and like just the grinding work ethic to, to be these amazing athletes are limited by something so mundane, like a trail, Yeah, like dirt, like that is really what's standing in the way for these athletes going to express themselves. It just seems so unnecessary. It really does. Doesn't it?
2: Cause you're, you're, you know, the idea is to climb a mountain, but you shouldn't have to climb a mountain to get to yeah. the base of, you know, yeah. that climb. Yeah. Super do you think that's
3: part of like the kind of gatekeeping of climbing or do you think that's not necessarily like a part of
0: it? I think it's just people like not thinking it's important enough, you mm-hmm. know, like bringing it back a little bit to mountain biking. Like there's a lot of trails that you know, or a lot of areas where bikers want single track put in, they want these trails put in and people like the city people or the trail building people just don't think that it's going to benefit that many people or that it's worth the investment or whatever. And I think, you know, this is obviously different, but similar that they're like, well, you know, it's expensive to build wheelchair accessible trail and we have to like put a sign up and like,
1: or the conversation hasn't even happened. Yeah.
0: Or even worse, the conversation hasn't happened. Um, and I think too, it's just like, i again i hate to make it like on the athlete to do this because i think it should be it should be bigger than that but i think like the demand should have to happen like why the fuck did san diego not have a single handicap accessible trail huh why why
1: that is crazy because <laughs> the conversation hasn't happened maybe
0: <laughs> yeah but it's it's hard you can only do so much like self-advocacy before you're just like tired of the fight you know yeah so
2: it it's intense yeah um I think we have a long way to go, but I'm excited. Yeah. You know, there's a long road ahead, long road ahead.
0: What is the perfect future look like if you could just like put a bunch of ingredients in a pot and have the perfect future?
2: <laughs> I love that question. Um, Cause it's, I think about it all day long. Um, so I, outside of climbing, I do have other ambitions. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm just finishing up my last year at UC San Diego as a speculative design major. So I want to.
0: For the 50th time,
2: explain uh, yeah. to me
0: what a <laughs> speculative design so Speculative major
2: design in a nutshell is basically it's conceptual based design. It's intention It's intentionally very open-ended. So it combines art and design and technology and architecture and urban planning and all of the things that kind of encompass design. And then it's open-ended to be able to kind of allow you to kind of explore your own Avenue. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different concentrations. Um, and so I'm in the, kind of electronic, everything kind of happens through the computer kind of deal where everything's, you know, the, the computer's the medium in a sense. And so I would love to get into, um, like helping develop technologies for folks with disabilities to better, to help better navigate kind of the, the natural world and help people connect better with nature. Um, so that's, that's a, you know, obviously like a huge passion of mine, but, um, in an ideal world, like I would be able to travel the world and go explore all these, you know, super awesome accessible crags and just kind of push the sport forward and be able to compete and go to every competition that's available on the the circuit. Cause generally there's usually two, three paraclimbing world cups mm-hmm. in the year and then worlds happen every two years. So just being able to have that flexibility to just be able to go and compete and not have to worry about the travel expenses yeah. and then the lodging and the food and all those kind of secondary logistical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being able to just kind of train and be flexible with my kind of personal career, um, being able to kind of have both sides in um, both of those worlds, cause it's hard to separate them because, yeah. you know, it, they're, they're both very much a part of me. And as much as I'd like to say, you know, I, I, all I want to do is climb, um, which I definitely <laughs> do feel right now cause <laughs> school's brutal. Um, you know, I, I do want to continue to pursue, both sides of these, you know, these two sides of my life. Cause we've got the, we've got the Paralympics in 2028, 20, which is seven years from now. Yeah. I'll be 29. So, Oh,
0: you're almost priming though. Yeah. Isn't 32 like prime age for a climber. I think? So
2: yeah, I think it's all relative. Right. But you <laughs> just got to keep my shoulders healthy. So yeah. if I'm priming come the first, uh, Paralympics, uh, that has para climbing in it. Um, you know, I would love to just continue putting in the work and putting in the time and, you know, training like a professional athlete and then also being able to pursue kind of this other career-based path. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I feel like keeping with the theme, where does cheese fall into your future? <laughs> Every guest has talked about cheese on this Have podcast they? and we're, we're closing out. We got <laughs> to get
2: <laughs> so, it. me with your favorite, uh, cheese. Okay. So, and I think, uh, you know, depending on how you look at it, an unfortunate sort of consequence of traveling, I've been able to try like really good cheeses. Yeah. So it's not <laughs> like I'm going to say, Oh, I love slapping a piece of American cheese on some chips and throwing it in the microwave. You know, I'm more, <laughs> is that I mean, something w- you do? Though? No, it's my, what my dad does. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every night.
0: Yeah, it sounded so, like you just had like a really traumatic flashback yeah.
2: <laughs> to a meal you've eaten recently. No, no, not personal. Just, um living vicariously through my dad as, okay. a, as a child um and you know it was traumatic <laughs> um, <laughs> on second thought uh no but being able to try some super killer cheeses in france was pretty cool and being able to i don't know I guess that's where my mind goes when I think of cheese. I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to try some good cheese. Let's be
3: honest. Trader Joe's unexpected cheddar.
2: That is a very solid cheese.
1: Unexpected?
2: It's, it's, so it's, it's versatile, right? Like you can just, you can Mm kind of snack at it. Like we, we we like having it with some, some dates or some chocolate chips and it's just a, it's like a, it's a cheddar cheese, but it tastes a little Parmesan. Parmesan Yeah. Parmesan essence. Mm. So I'll put it on sandwiches. We'll, we'll put it in like, um. You can put it in like I don't know salads. You, so you, you can melt it. You can pound
0: it. Is it there. vegan or what mm. is unexpected about it? It's the,
2: the it's it's the unexpected Parmesan sort of like tingle that you get at the end. You're like, oh, I thought I was eating cheddar cheese, but oops. Oh, Parmesan.
0: Oh. <laughs> it's very good. Very good. Highly recommend.
2: It's really good. Interesting. Yeah. So you're
0: just like straight cheese and crackers.
2: You know, I'm more of a cheese and dates guy.
0: Cheese and dates. Yeah. That sounds disgusting.
2: You know, it does. Right. Yeah, but it doesn't. It's, it's very good. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, um, uh, my least favorite thing in life is when people like dupe you into eating healthy food Yeah. without you knowing. Mm. And one time I got duped into eating a cake, but instead of like chocolate and sugar, like normal people make cakes out of, it was made out of like dates. Oh. And I ate it. I was like, "This is the worst cake I've ever had." Oh, I'm and sorry. my friend was just like, teehee, it's made out of dates." <laughs> so me and dates have a personal vendetta.
2: Ooh. <laughs> you know the a really good use of dates is like the pressed freeze. If you mm-hmm. had pressed freeze where it's like date based frozen yogurt. <laughs> yes, sounds just, see it sounds weird, right? Yeah, so good. I just it's
3: dates
0: and almonds. It's it's,
2: it's basically like very almonds.
0: weird, but it tastes like it's amazing. I just want my amazing. froyo to be froyo. Yeah, not a fruit like not a. A vegetable mm. you know it's like cauliflower mashed potatoes yeah see that doesn't, like, just, that stop. doesn't just give that me a potato go. give me a nice pesticide soaked potato yeah <laughs> anywho <laughs> That's um rad well thank you so much for for joining us and dealing with us and yeah is thanks for your input too it's always nice to have some <laughs> some
2: other perspectives on things yeah you gave a lot of good angles yeah yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, fun.
0: of course. I am yeah. excited to do this maybe again in a year and see what's yeah, happened. Yeah, see what's We got to do like some some circle
1: backs. Follow-ups. Yeah, follow-ups. Sweet.
0: Everyone's doing rad though. Nothing's really changed much for the nope. <laughs>
1: people. Just grinding. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Cool. All right.
0: One, two, three, Break. Break.